0: band and worship team as we set out on our uh, on marriage month here at JCI in a series that we're calling man vs. wife learning to win in the battleground that uh, that we call marriage we started about a month ago we sent out facebook messages and we set out some uh, some tweets and we said tell us your favorite love songs either in your history or current with dozens of songs come in our band each week is going to play one of those you'll hear those songs playing as you come in on Sunday morning just as we try to get in the mood to talk about marriage and about love. You know, this month at our church is always one of my uh, most favorite series that I ever teach from the Bible, and it's, it's also at the same time one of my least favorite series that I ever teach from the Bible, and here's why. It's one of my most favorite because I'm passionate about marriage, and of, of all the things that I want our church to be known for, uh, loving the community giving to the community, serving the community, uh, giving to global missions. One of the things I want to be said about our church is that it's characterized by couples who have strong marriages. It's characterized by men who desperately love their wives and wives who are deeply in love with their husbands. And I want our church to be a church known for its marriages. So for that reason, it's one of the most favorite months that I ever get to teach. It's also one of my least favorite for this reason. Everything I say here this month, um, I'm going to have to do or my wife will ride me relentlessly. Your wife this month long will say things like, Christian said, Christian said, when you're not evolving in your marriage like hopefully we hope to, my wife will say this, you said, you said, you told the people, so because I'm not where I need to be in marriage and I've got a long way to go. It's difficult to stand and teach things in marriage you're not doing. You feel like a hypocrite. But as long as we're pursuing these together and the commitment I make is I'm not going to teach you anything that, that I'm not pursuing in my own life and in my own marriage. Um, if, if we can have that covenant, I, I think it will work well. You know, marriage doesn't stay the same. In uh, February 3rd, 2012, I don't know where your marriage was a year ago today, but I know today your marriage is either worse worse or it's better than it was a year ago. It's not the same. If you think it's the same, it's probably worse, but marriages don't stay the same. I've heard it said this way, that over the years, marriages either get better or they get bitter. Um, I've heard it said this way, that your marriage is either like milk or it's like wine. Uh, Milk, as it ages, gets worse. It goes from milk to spoiled milk, and then they just turn around and sell it and call it yogurt. And then it goes from yogurt to spoiled yogurt. And then they turn around and sell it as cottage cheese. And then it goes from cottage cheese to spoiled cottage cheese. And then they sell it to you as blue cheese. It's the only thing that the worse it gets, the more they keep selling it. And eventually it just gets toxically moldy and you can't use it. And some of you are here. And your marriage every year has taken a little step down. And your marriage is toxic today. If you were to be very honest about your marriage today, you, you might say in your heart, it's over. Um, Others of you have marriages that are like wine and every year it gets a little better and every year it gets a little sweeter And the vintage of your marriage is it's just gaining more value and value and value as the years go on The thing you need to understand this month is that regardless of where you are things can change If you're on the bad end, they can change and get better If you're on the good end and you don't continue to manage your marriage They can change and get worse and I, I speak from experience the first seven years of Danielle and my marriage. And for those of you who are brand new, my wife is the blonde who sings up here. The first seven years of our marriage, one reason I'm so passionate about teaching on marriage were not very good. Um, I was extremely immature. I was extremely selfish. Uh, I didn't understand what a biblical marriage was. And I keep using this phrase, biblical marriage. If you have your sermon notes that we gave you up, just on on the top of your notes here, I want you to write this. Uh, Last week, we spent a month defining biblical marriage from... The book of Song of Solomon from, from Solomon who was the wisest man to ever live. And we said biblical marriage is defined as two people who are best friends and passionate lovers. So if you just want to jot that at the top as a reference. When I say biblical marriage so you know what I'm talking about. Biblical marriage is a marriage where it's characterized by a couple who are best friends and passionate. Lovers, the first seven years of our marriage, my wife and I were not best friends. We were not passionate lovers. We were, um, because really of my selfishness and bitterness, we were kind of going in two different directions. Um, I was very selfish if we were together. It was because my wife was selfless. And we had a marriage that from 1999 to 2006, um, it ended up being a very, a, a very toxic mold of marital happiness. It wasn't good. You say, what changed? I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. Somewhere along the way, I don't know if we went to a marriage conference, I don't know if we heard a marriage series, but somewhere along the way we looked at each other and said, you know, if the next 25 years of our life is going to be like this, this will be miserable. And perhaps the only thing worse than getting a divorce is staying married because that was the state of our marriage. And we began to pursue this thought of biblical marriage. We began to look in the Bible and, and we tried to find what God said about marriage and how we could improve our marriage and every year, it seems like our marriage just got a little better. And, and now we, we've moved all the way back past milk into wine. And now we are like a, a, a great vintage. And I don't drink wine, so I don't know what a, like a, a good one is. But like we're one of the valuable ones, right? I mean, if you were to go into a restaurant and order us, you'd have to pay a lot for a glass of our marital wine because we have worked so diligently on trying to have a marriage that honors God and is characterized by two people who we would say in the outside world around us would say, man, they are best friends and they are passionate lovers. But marriage in the church today, marriage within the world today, it's not at a very good place. You know more people um, who get married in divorce than stay married. And you need to understand as I start this series, and I've had several people reach out to me this week and say, Christian, will this, mar- will this series be a series that I get anything out of if I'm divorced? Christian, is this series going to be a series that will be hard to sit through if, if I'm in a difficult marriage? Christian, if I'm single, am I going to get anything out of this? And I, I believe that you will, but I want you to know I, I, I want to be, and, and I'm trying to be extremely sensitive for those who are divorced, but here's what we have to realize about divorce. it It has become, unfortunately, a way of life in the church and outside of the church. More people get divorced than stay married. So at some point, we've got to understand that and in the church we got to try to figure out can can we do better uh, when you look at the state of marriage today you know I I have um I I rarely sit with people who are excited about marriage I rarely sit with people who have a goal to have a good marriage as a matter of fact I I talk to young men in my 14 years of ministry and there are a lot of men my age in their mid thirties and their forties who have a goal to be a great dad and they talk often about being the dad that they did not have, because we grew up, our parents were in the boomer generation, they worked their tails off, and maybe we didn't see our parents as much as we wanted to. So I I hear often from men who who have a goal to be the best dad ever. And I hear often from uh, women who, since they were young and carrying around baby dolls, have a goal to be like the best mommy in the world. And I hear couples talking about having a good job and living in a nice house and having a nice uh, nest egg and developing a good career but I have never not even one time sat with a man who said it's my goal to be the best husband in the world I've never sat with a woman who said it's my goal to be the best wife in the world I've never sat with a couple that said our goal as a couple is to have the greatest marriage in the world because great marriage is not on our radar it's not what we're pursuing it's not really what we think about by by default or uh, on purpose It's just not one of the things that we're pursuing in life. Instead, we're we're the generation that I was reminded of. I I was watching a movie that, you know, I I wouldn't highly recommend. When I talk about movies, it doesn't mean go out and watch them. Some of them aren't even good to watch. Some of them aren't spiritual to watch. Um, But I watch a lot of movies. It's one of the way I relax. And I was watching a movie called What to Expect When You're Expecting is a movie about three or four couples who were having kids at the same time. One was going to adopt, one ended up miscarrying, one had a baby. It just, you know, kind of, kind of random people who were having kids together. And there was his dad who was getting ready to get married, and they were going to adopt a baby. And he started kind of taking walks with this men's group that walked their kids together. Chris Rock, the comedian, was one of these men. This is more of a comedy than a serious movie. But on one of the walks, he was talking about, well, how do you be a dad and how can you be a husband and how do you do all this? And one of the dads turned to him and what he said really got my attention. As a matter of fact, when he said it, I wrote it down and I thought, I need to use that because this is the pursuit, I think. Not just the result, but the pursuit of our generation. He said this to the father-to-be. He said, I'm a lackluster husband, but an above average dad. I want you to leave that on the screen for a minute. Because I think we would hear that and applaud that. We would hear that and echo that. We would hear that and say, what's wrong with that? You know, yeah, you got to get married and stay married, but the important thing is, is to be a good parent. And I think we have a generation that has settled for less than a 10 on a scale of 10 marriage because it's just not even on our radar that it could be better, that it should be better, that, that we want it to be married. And this month at our church, I want to change that. This month at our church, I want to put up a target that is a real good picture of biblical marriage. And I'm hoping that we'll begin to pursue it, and we'll begin to talk about it, and we'll begin to make changes, and we'll begin to prioritize marriage instead of just be married within the life that we have. And I want to talk to you about what the Bible says about that. Now, this month, if you're married in our church, it's going to be a good month for you. Some of you are not going to be able to be here every Sunday You need to go online the Sundays that you're not here, and you need to watch the messages that you've missed. Because if you're married, this is a very important month for you. If you're divorced, I believe this can be both a very healing month for you and a good month of ministry. Last year during our marriage series, I had a man in his 50s and a woman in her late 40s who had both been divorced less than a decade who really told me after that series they were not able to release their divorce. They were not able to move on. They were not able to really understand what went wrong. They were not able to even have a chance at moving forward until the series. And the series on biblical marriage allowed them not only to understand what went wrong, to forgive themselves and their ex for what went wrong, but it allowed them to look forward to the future again with hope. So if you're divorced, that's my goal for you. If you're engaged, this is like the greatest marriage counseling that you can have this month because I'm gonna draw a picture for you of what the Bible says good marriage is. If you're single, this is, a, this is a series you want to hang on to. You want to keep in your back pocket because you will, this may forever change the person you're looking for and the person you're trying to become for marriage. And if you're teenagers, like the second row sitting here, um, I wish I would have heard this when I was a teenager because it would have changed the way I dated, who I dated, um, how long I did It would have changed everything because I truly understood what marriage was. You know, 2 Timothy 3.16 says this. All scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful So if you're in here today and you say, well, you know, is this series going to do anything for me? Listen, anytime you teach the Bible, it's going to do something for you if you're listening with your heart. So today we're going to open up our Bible. We're going to teach on marriage, but we're just going to read the Bible. And and I've got some points in here for people who are not married, some things that you can hang on to. But today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, and I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 2 with me. And if you don't have your Bible, the ushers are going to come down the aisle and they're going to pass out Bibles. If you don't have one and you'd like a Bible to follow along today, just wave at them and they'll give you one. We've passed out more than 400 Bibles since our church began 16 months ago uh, in exactly this manner. If you don't have a Bible or maybe you you think you have one but you don't know where it is, put your name in this one and keep it. It's yours. It's our gift to you. Uh, If you have a Bible but forgot it but would love to have one open on your lap while we study, just use it and throw it on the table when you leave and we'll give it to someone else next week. But every week at our church, we'll open the Bible, we'll read it, we'll learn from it because this is, this is kind of our textbook for everything in life, including marriage. And my goal this month is just that we can press the reset button and begin to rewind what marriage is all about. Today, I want to ask and answer a question. And it's an interesting question. And it's one that I don't think very many people answer, or a- ever ask. And it's this question, marriage. What's the point of marriage? What's the purpose of marriage? Why do people get married? Why is it a part of history? What, what's the idea behind marriage? There are some people in here today who are married who have never asked this question, and because of that, their marriages are all messed up. There are some people in here today who are engaged and getting ready to get married, but they have no idea why, biblically, anyone is supposed to get married. There are some people in here today trying to figure out if they're going to be able to stay married. And the reason they're thinking about leaving their marriage is because their marriage doesn't have these things in them. uh, And it's because no one has ever told them. So today we're going to ask the question, and, and here's the cool thing about the question. What's the purpose of marriage? God literally today gives us a verse that says this. Now this is why people get married. If you've ever wondered why God had people get married, God says today, this is why... People get married, and we can see how your marriage compares and what you need to do to move forward. Genesis chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 4, go through verse 7. Then we're going to continue the narrative in verse 15, go through verse 24. And it says this, Now this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created and when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God hadn't sent rain on the earth, and there was no one... To work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Go go over to verse 15. This is where the narrative continues on this man. Now the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone, so I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds in the sky and all the wild animals, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, and he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why, by the way, if you have a pen, underline that. That is why. Here's the reason why. Remember, we said, what's the point? Why do people get married? This is why, God says people get married, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What is why? This is why. Say, what, what's this? It's everything from Genesis 2 verse 4 to Genesis 2 verse 24. If we can understand this story, we can understand why people are supposed to get married. If we can understand the dynamics of why God needed to give Eve to Adam, we can understand men, why we're supposed to have wives. We can understand wives, what type of wives we're supposed to be. If we can understand what just happened in Genesis chapter 2, we can understand why people are supposed to get married. So marriage, what's the point? Three things that stick out pretty clearly in the text if you read over it and you comb through it slowly. Number one, clearly, people need people. Why do people get married? Because people need people. You know, if, if we were to pick up just the Bible and start reading, we would start at Genesis 1-1. For those of you who have never been to church, for those of you who don't know anything about the Bible, the very first book of the Bible is called Genesis. The very first verse of the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And in Genesis chapter 1, we just hear what God did. And everything that God did up to Genesis chapter two eighteen was Perfect or what God called good. Day one, he said, let there be light. There was light, and he was like, this is cool. This is good. Let's go to bed and start over again tomorrow. Day two, he said, how about we take this ball of water, and we divide it. Water's below from water's above, and we can create some, some air, uh, and he did that, and he was like, that's cool. That's Perfect. That's good. Let's go to bed and we'll start again tomorrow. He woke up on day three and he said, let's take that, that water and let's make some land out of it. And, and let's go ahead and plant some trees on that land. Now, when I was young, my, my dad, who is constantly, uh, I'm like my dad. He's, he's totally ADD. He can't sit still. He's got to have a hobby. So he decided one year he was going to start painting Um, and he bought a bunch of VHS tapes at the time, the kids don't even know what that is, um, of a guy named Bob Ross. Y'all know who Bob Ross is, big-haired Bob Ross. Bob Ross was always in our living room painting with my dad, and Bob Ross would, you know, paint happy little trees and happy little birds, and I kind of picture God like Bob Ross without the afro here in Genesis chapter two on day three. He's like, how about some land? And he's like, why don't we put just a little, happy little tree there and a happy little bird there. So God's like, land, trees, cool, that's good, let's go to bed. Day four, he's like, let's hang let's hang some lights up in the sky. How about sun, moon, stars? Boom! That's awesome. That's good. Let's go to bed. Day five, he gets up. Uh, we got all this water and all this all this air. Let's put some stuff in the water. Let's put some birds in the air. He does that. That's great. That's perfect. Goes to bed. Day six, let's create some animals. That's cool. Let's create the man. And for the first time in the Bible, in Genesis two eighteen. Everything up to Genesis 2.18, I been mean, good, 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 good. And all of a sudden, we hear not good, and it's like, er, put the brakes on. God just said something was less than perfect? He sure did. In Genesis chapter 2.18, the Lord God said, wait a minute, this isn't good. This, this day can't be done yet because this isn't perfect. It's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. Now, on this thought of alone, I mean, I looked up and could give you dozens of verses on why the Bible says it's not good to be alone. I could give you dozens of verses on why the Bible says it's not good for us spiritually or emotionally to feel alone. But today, I'm just going to stick with Genesis 2.18, and I'm going to pull, like, the parent card. Do you ever have your kids just say, why, 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 and eventually your answer is, "Because, because I said so. You say, why is it not good to be alone? Because God said so. That, that's all I need today. Well, why isn't it good to be alone? Because God said so. Where? Genesis 2.18. God said, this isn't good for man to be alone. And notice what God didn't create um, so that Adam would be alone. Because this is, we're like in version 1.0 of humanity. And God could have created anything, right? Adam is alone. Adam needs someone. He could have given Adam a friend. He didn't give Adam a friend. He could have given Adam uh, parents. He didn't give Adam parents. He could have given Adam in-laws, but God would never want to do that to anyone. Um, you know, he—he—I um, shouldn't have said that, but I did. Um, he, you know, he could have given Adam a son. I mean, what does a dad want more in life than a son? He could have given Adam a son, but he didn't. He gave him a wife. He could have given him anything. But the person that this person needed to make life perfect was a spouse. Now, it's interesting that God would do this. But what's even more interesting is the order that God did it in. Let me explain this to you. In Genesis chapter 2.18, God recognized a need in Adam's life that he did not immediately meet. say, what do you mean by that? I mean this. If we think of God as a God who just every time we have a need, meets it immediately, the Bible would read like this. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper, so he made Eve. It doesn't say that. It actually says that God saw the need. God saw how he was going to meet the need, but then he let it linger for a while, and he sent Adam to do something else. Now, if you're not married today, perhaps this is the greatest takeaway in this message from you, for you. Because there are some people in here today who have some needs. Financial needs, emotional needs, physical needs, career needs. There are some people in here who have some needs. And you're wondering if God sees those needs because he hasn't met them yet. And you're beginning to tell yourself God doesn't care. God doesn't see. God can't help. But Genesis 2.18 says that sometimes God sees your need. He knows exactly what he's going to do to meet that need, but then he waits. And he lets you continue to be diligent in what he's called you to do, and at some point in the future, there'll be an intersection of your life with God's promise, and he'll meet that need. See, so often when we have a need that goes unmet for any period of time, we just quit, we just stop, we just give up, we just think God doesn't see, God doesn't care, God can't help. And what God wanted Adam to do and what God wants us to do is sometimes it's just, you just got to keep moving forward because the need will be met in the future. God always sees needs, God can always meet needs. He just doesn't always do it immediately according to Genesis 2:18. So God saw the need that Adam needed someone. People need people. But he didn't meet that need. Instead, he did what I'm getting ready to tell you in point number 2, which doesn't even make any sense until I'd explain it to you. It makes so little sense in fact that when I sent my sermon over to the gal in our church who prepares the sermon notes so that you can take notes. She actually emailed me back and said, I think point two is wrong because it doesn't make any sense. I said, no, that's right. I just have to explain it for it to make sense because point two is this. Here's what Adam realized. Here's what God needed Adam to realize. People need need for good marriages. He said, did you just have like a remix or a Tourette's? Like like what just happened there? Um, you just said the same thing twice. I know I said the same thing twice. And I've actually got the second one capitalized, all caps, so that you can understand, like in an email, I'm screaming it at you. Um, People need need. People need to understand there is a need in their life that their spouse is supposed to meet. Say, Christian, what in the heck are you talking about? Look at the Bible again. Go back to Genesis chapter 18. And I'm going to read this to you and then I'm going to show you what happened. In Genesis two eighteen, the Lord God said, It's not good for a man to be alone. I am gonna help him out, I'll make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God who had formed all the now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds. He brought them to the man to see what he named them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. Now, here's what I want you to understand today. And this, I believe this is the biggest missing aspect in marriages today is that people don't need need. Let me explain what I mean by this. You know, I did not really understand this text until I took it in a seminary class and we spent probably eight weeks just on Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And until you understand the evolution of the first day of Adam's life, it doesn't make sense what I'm saying. But when you understand it, you'll get what I'm saying and and you may understand where something's missing in your own life and in your own marriage. Think about Adam's first day of life. The Bible says that God took some dirt and this is why men like to play in dirt because God started us that way. Um, And and he formed this body out of dirt and it was just like a hill of dirt on the ground. Um, He may have taken his bike and and like did a a few ramps over it before he made it a person, but there's this lump of dirt. And then the Bible says that God got down and like performed CPR on the man. He blew into the man's nostrils. So God's face is covering the man's mouth and nose, and he's blowing into him the breath of life, which means the moment Adam woke up. I want you to think about this. The very first time Adam ever opened his eyes, he literally is looking directly into the face of God, which is probably an inch from his face. It's got to be pretty cool. I mean, Adam's got to think, what, you know, what is happening here? He goes from there and God picks him up and he plants him into the most beautiful tropical paradise you could ever imagine. Hawaii times 100, a place that we call the Garden of Eden. And and God says, this is yours. You can have everything. There's only one tree you can't eat from, but everything else is yours. And Adam is like, unbelievable. Can this day get any better? And God says, yes, it can because I've created every animal in the known world, and they're all hanging out in the garden, and you get to take care of them all, and you get to play with them all. As a matter of fact, I need you to name them all. So Adam sits down, leans against a tree, and one by one, the birds fly by, and he's naming them, and the animals come up. And you can imagine, as this afternoon drags on, he's getting bored. You know, he's not even saying words anymore. He's just like, yak. You know, he's just naming things, as so they come by aardvark. Um, you know, and he's like bored out of his mind. And at some point, he looks around and notices what God noticed the moment Adam was created. After sitting around all day long in the greatest day of his life, it had to hit Adam. There's nothing here like me. I mean, I've seen now everything there is to see. I've named everything there is to name. And the Bible says in verse 20, Adam realized he didn't have a suitable help. There's no one like me. God allowed Adam to understand he had a need for a wife before he met that need for him. Here's what I think is one of the greatest missing elements of marriage today. We don't really need our spouse to survive. Now, Adam did. He's all by himself. If God didn't give him Eve, he had no one. But you know what? We we have so filled our lives with being self-sufficient. I mean, that's the American way, right? We can do it on our own. And we've got friends, and we've got our kids, and we've got our hobbies, and we've got our work, and we've got our parents, and we've got our siblings, and we've got fraternity brothers and sorority sisters. And the truth is... We don't really have to be vulnerable, desperate, or dependent on our spouse because if they go, we'll be okay. And we even make sure that we'll be okay. Before we move into marriage, we think, "Eh, if it doesn't work out, I'll be okay. And God created in Adam this sense of desperation that you need this person for your happiness. So Adam had this need of need. He needed something And you know what? I think one of the reasons it's so easy to throw in the towel today is because someone will be there for us. We just have other people that we've plugged into our life and we've never allowed ourselves to become dependent or vulnerable on our spouse because it's not safe. It's not safe. We even have a way now to protect yourself before you get married, called a prenup, basically saying, I'm going to marry you, but I'm going to make sure, I will have my fallback playing crap. I'm going to make sure you can't ruin me. So I'm going to marry you, but I don't need you. And we live in a world where marriages are between two people that really don't need each other. They might like each other. They might enjoy each other. But, you know, on a daily basis, they really don't need one another. They're kind of co-parenting. I worked with a couple a little while ago whose marriage was clearly coming to an end. And I asked them, why are you staying together? And she said, well, you know, I really need his money to do what I want to do, and he needs someone to watch the kids, and it just works. And I just thought, that's not, that's not the need that the Bible talks about. You know, most of us don't need our spouse, and and the priority of our life is not to depend on them for anything. You know, my wife, the first few years of our marriage, I didn't say this in the early service because I only thought about it between services, but the first few years of, of our marriage, uh, one of her nicknames for me was Don't Need No One. And I would, because, you know, because I could, like, I could go sit in the woods by myself for a month um, and do nothing and be okay with that. I am overly self sufficient. And she used to say, You know, you don't need me. And, and I would say, because I was young and immature, You're right. I'd be fine. Um, and you know what? That's unhealthy for marriage. We need some people who are willing to say, I, I can't live without you. I need you emotionally, physically. Uh, I need you. And we see today marriages that we, we have so many exit doors that we're not locked in a room with a need to be close to someone. You know, I thought it was so interesting. I, I saw a movie with my mom and dad over Christmas break called Parental Guidance where Billy Crystal and Bette Midler were married to each other. Maybe some of you saw it, and they had a daughter, Marissa Tomei, who kind of hated both of them, and they had to go visit her in Atlanta and watch her kids for a week. And it came out in the movie that Marissa Tomei couldn't stand her dad, and she had always wanted her mom to leave her dad because he was so invested in what he was doing. And she asked her mom one time, why wouldn't you ever leave him? And Bette Midler says to Marissa Tomei, a thought that, again, when I heard it, it just struck to my heart. She said, honey, you don't understand. When everyone else leaves, he's the one who stays. You see, the truth is, eventually, if if nature works correctly, our parents will not only leave, they'll pass away. Our kids, God help us, will move out of the house one day, right? And, I mean, we'll not be around forever. Our hobbies, we won't be able to do forever. Our work will end. We'll retire or get fired or get transferred to a different job. Our siblings will go their different ways. We'll move to a different city where our frat frat brothers and sorority sisters don't live. At some point, we're going to be alone, and we're gonna to need to need our spouse because they're the one who stays. You know, in the Old Testament in Israel, when you got married, you weren't allowed to go to war for a year after you got married. You know, in Israel, when you got married, you really weren't supposed to go, ever go out of town for work once you got married, you weren't supposed to work too hard. You say, why? Because in Israel, when you got married, the most important thing, they said, you need to take the next 365 days be alone with your spouse and develop this need and intimacy with each other so it's you against the world forever. And now we get married and we don't even take a week off for a honeymoon because we got to get back to work. There's no need for need. You know, I'm a, uh, I'm a big baseball fan. Uh, I'm excited next month like I've done for the last five years. My dad and I will go to Arizona and we'll watch some spring training baseball and we'll play golf and we'll do the guy thing. You know, I, I love sitting out at Kaufman Stadium. I, I love the game of baseball. I'm a baseball historian. I used to collect baseball cards. I love to read about it. And and a few weeks ago, uh, one of the greatest baseball players to ever play the game of baseball passed away. His name was Stan Musial. They called him Stan the Man Musial for the St. Louis Cardinals. 22 big league seasons with the Cardinals. He's a Hall of Famer. He had a 331 career average. Seven straight years where he hit over 330, which, I mean, doesn't even happen anymore. 475 home runs. Over 3,600 hits, almost 2,000 runs batted in. He won three World Series, and at the end of his life, they asked him what statistic he was most proud of. And here is the number the Stan the Man Mutual is most proud of in all of his life. He said, It's the number 71, because that's how many years I was married to my wife before she passed away. That's a man who had a need. You're not know, married 71 years unless you have a need for your spouse. I read about a couple, Clifford and Eva Vevey, who lived in Minnesota, who just a month ago were in a nursing home together. Clifford was 93, his wife was 90. They had allowed them, as they had grown old and their bodies had begun to grow sick, to stay in the same room with each other. And a few weeks ago, Clifford at 93 passed away pretty suddenly for a 93-year-old. And when the family cleared the room and they cleared out all the doctors and nurses, one of the nurses Ask Eva, they said, would you like us to push your bed over next to Clifford's so you could just maybe hold his hand for a little while before we remove the body? And she said, I'd like that very much. And they pushed her bed next to Clifford's and she took hold of his hand as he laid there before they took his body away. And they closed the door behind her. A few hours they went back in to check on her and found her dead, holding her husband's hand with this. Her kid said this thought that she just refused to live without him. That's needing a spouse. You know, so many of us aren't where we need to be in marriage because it's just not necessary for us to be married. It's not necessary emotionally. It's not necessary financially. It's not necessary mentally. It's just we'll find other things. And at some point, we've got to drop that rough exterior. We've got to drop the big shoulders, and we've got to say, you know, I need you, and uh, I'm going to get vulnerable. And I'm going to risk being hurt if I don't have you, but I, but I need you. Because we have to learn what it is to need need. These are pictures of people who needed their spouse, and what a wonderful story they had. But then thirdly, and lastly, as we study the story of Adam and Eve, we realize that people need relational fusion. Now, fusion is an interesting word. Fusion is when two things slam together, two p- particles, atomic fusion. Um, You know, because of all my background in science and physics, I just Googled it. Uh, You know, uh, atomic fusion um, is, uh, yeah, that's a true story. Uh, Atomic fusion is when two particles collide going so fast that they literally stick together and they become a whole new substance and you can't separate them. The Bible says that marriage is supposed to be that kind of collision. Look at verses 21 through 24. It says, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. and While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he taken out of a man. And he brought her to the man, and the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. That, this is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become, what's the number there? I can't hear you. One flesh. They collide. Two parts collide, and they become one, man and woman, become one couple. One of my favorite stories that my seminary professor told was you know, how Adam named things. You know, Adam would just, as things walked up, he would see them, he would say something, and that would become its name. And he said, you can imagine Adam on the sixth day of creation, the first time he ever takes a nap, he wakes up from a nap and looks, and there's a naked woman standing in front of him. And you can be assured that he said, whoa, man, and she became woman because God named things, the first thing, Adam, uh, Adam's mouth. Um, I don't know if that's true, but uh, why not? Um, people need relational fusion. You know, maybe the most theologically accurate thing that Tom Cruise, a crazy Scientologist, has ever said was as the character of Jerry Maguire talking to Renee, Renee Zellweger in the, in the movie Jerry Maguire, which please don't go watch um, that movie. It will not be good for you spiritually. But he stood across from a living room and he, and he said these words to her, you, if you've seen the movie, what are the you yeah, so you've also seen that very bad movie. We should all <laughs> repent for that together at the end of this service. But he said to her, you complete me. You complete, like my life is not complete until you can, You complete. That's the thought of relational fusion. And it's interesting because atomic fusion happens when things collide together quickly. But I have found that relational fusion in marriage only happens as two people collide slowly and consistently And with priority, relational fusion only happens as two people spend a lot of slow, uninterrupted, purposeful time together. That's how relational fusion occurs. You know, I'm often asked by people, what's the first piece of advice I'd give to a married couple who wants to grow closer in their marriage, and the answer is very easy. But it's something that not very many people do. It's an easy answer, but but I guess a hard thing to carry out. And it's this, that the secret weapon, I believe, of marriage to a great marriage is what I would call a regular date night. It's two people slowly and consistently colliding together until they become one. Now, why don't two people love each other and care about each other ever take time for a regular date night, weekly? twice a month, once a month. Why? Because there's no time. That's your answer. That, that's your answer. That's my answer. Christian, there's just no time. I don't have time for that. Uh, I had a couple. I, you know, I did youth ministry for eight years from 1999 up until about 2007, and I interacted with a lot of couples. I, I saw a lot of marriages fall apart whose teenagers were part of my youth ministry. And several years back, uh, I had a couple come to me. You know, their kids said, say, Christian, you've got to meet with my mom and dad. I don't think their marriage is going to make it. Uh, sat down and it was just very clear they had grown apart like their lives were not one they didn't need each other they really didn't love each other and it wasn't going to make it and I sat down and I told him I said if your marriage is going to make it you have to start spending time together you have to and uh, I said here's my prescription for you you need to start right now having every every week you need to have a regular date night begin to date again and just see if you can fall in love and they said we don't have time for that I said tell me your schedule The dad was a uh, former college basketball player who was playing in two rec leagues uh, during the week on different nights in different places uh, and played basketball twice a week. The two nights that he didn't play in basketball, his wife was a fitness freak and she did a spin class. So four nights of their week were taken up playing basketball and spin classes. And they had a middle school daughter who was in competitive softball. She was a competitive softball player, very good, went on to play college. And they had a fifth grade son who did taekwondo. Mom did taekwondo with the son, dad did Uh, competitive softball with the daughter, and I mean, their lives literally never intersected. And I sat down and I told him after we met, I said, guys, you're going to have to give some of that up. If you want your marriage to be priority, you're going to have to say, it's not that you don't have time, it's that you refuse to make time. You're saying these things are more important. And they said, we're just not willing to give that up. These are things that are important to us. Several years later, I went to watch the daughter play a game of college softball. The mom and dad had divorced. And as I sat in the stands, the mom sat by herself behind the backstop, and the dad stood out along the left field fence with his arms resting on the fence watching. And I just watched this family as this girl was playing softball. And at the end of the game, they kind of came together, the three of them, and I talked to them for a little bit. She got on her bus and went back to school. Mom got on her car, in her car and went her way. Dad got in his car and went his way. And I thought, I wonder if it was worth it. I wonder if all their time, refusing to make marriage a priority and now they're both going back to their apartments and their daughter goes back to school. She's probably the only healthy one of the bunch. I wonder if it was worth it. You see at our church this month it's time to figure out whether or not you want your marriage to be a priority. You have time. Even if you make a hundred bucks an hour, guess what? Taking off two hours of work a week to take your wife out for a cup of coffee, um, be worth it in the long run, I promise you. Having your kids play three sports instead of four, or maybe being an assistant coach instead of a head coach, or maybe carpooling every now and then instead of taking your kid to everything. I mean, at some point, there's got to be some sacrifice if marriage is more important than, I'm a lackadaisical sp- uh, spouse, but I'm a, I'm a great parent. At some point, things have to change. It's time to get rid of the excuses and talk tough on Will marriage be a priority? And here's what I mean. Like when we sit down on Sunday night, will we say priority number one, when is our date this week? Everything else comes second. Most couples sit down and they'll say this. Here's our calendar. We don't have time for anything else. What if you said, here's the calendar. First thing on it is the date we're going to have. And then we'll figure out everything else. You know the second answer I hear most often Christian, we don't have money to go out on dates. I had a, a, a pastor at a marriage conference one time say this. Dating is cheaper than divorcing. It's an interesting thought, is it not? I promise you, probably a weekly date, even if you just go to the coffee shop, is cheaper than getting a divorce one day. It's whether or not these things are a priority for you. You know, God loves marriage. I mean, it's real clear. The Bible starts with a marriage, Adam and Eve. The Bible ends with a marriage in Revelation 21, Jesus and the church. Jesus' uh, coming out moment as the Son of God was at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. So you have at the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible and one of the most important points in Jesus' life in the Bible, all of them happen at weddings. Jesus loves marriage. God loves marriage. But God loves life-changing relationships. God loves relational fusion that happens when we spend time together. Now here's another interesting thing that I learned about fusion is I studied up on it this week on the God-blessed internet Fusion is the process that keeps stars alive. And here's what I read this week. There are some stars that we can see in the sky every night that have already burned out. But because they're so far from planet Earth, the the time that they died, the speed of light is so far away, even though they have burned out, we can still see their light every night. And it made me think, I wonder how many marriages in our church have already burned out but we just haven't caught on to it yet. Still looks like marriage. Still reflecting marriage. But, but on the inside, it's all died out. See, I believe this week, we've got to try one more time to ignite the marriage. This month, we've got to try one more time to ignite relationships and develop a need for people, a need for need, and a need for relational fusion. So what are your next steps? Here, here's my goal for you. What's the point of this message? Four things. And then we'll be done. Here's the things that I want you to do this week if you want to make your marriage a priority. Number one, honestly evaluate your marriage. Use two words, milk or wine. Is your marriage been one that gets worse with time or is growing better with time? Evaluate your marriage. Be honest, all right, be honest. Secondly, honestly communicate where you believe your marriage is, but do this at a pre-appointed time. Ladies, don't call your husband at work in the middle of a meeting, crying. Say, I just decided our marriage is milk and what are we gonna do? he's gonna say, I'm gonna have to call you back and then you're gonna wanna divorce him or kill him on the spot. Um, You know, it's not good to talk about marriage like right as your husband falls asleep um, at night is not a good time to say, this is what we need to talk about. Listen, at 4.37 tonight, a minute before kickoff, it's not a good time to discuss your marriage. I promise you, it's the Super Bowl. It's not a good time. So, sit down together and say, This week at this time, we're gonna get together and we're gonna talk about this. Is that cool? And talk about it at a pre appointed time. Number three, begin to restructure your life for a regular date night. If it's a priority, you gotta do it. You just gotta do it. You gotta spend time together to build that fusion. And then, number four, plan what I call one night marriage getaway before June 1. This is where you leave your kids babysitter, no babysitter, doesn't matter. I told the earlier service, just put on door and throw out some candy bars, and they'll be fine for at least 24 hours. Um, Leave your kids, go away, have dinner, stay all night in a hotel, do what you do when you stay all night in a hotel, and then come back back excited about being married, kind of like a a little one-night honeymoon. Listen, if we're gonna have great marriages, we gotta work on them. We have to. It, it has to be priority. I understand your kids are a priority, and they should be. I understand your jobs are priority, and they should be. I understand your health and your hobbies are priority, and they should be. But none of them over your marriage, not even close. Marriage is what lasts when everything else ends. So I want to encourage you and challenge you. Take these steps. If you're not married today, maybe you're here for God to say, I see your need. I am going to meet your need. Keep going. Don't quit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. So thankful for our Bible study in Genesis chapter 2 today and what it teaches us about the difficult dynamics of marriage. Um, Lord, to see that your answer to the only problem on Creation Week was marriage tells us how important it is. But God, so many of us have marriage as a part of our life rather than the priority of our life, myself included, for so many years. Help us to reevaluate this week. Help us to restructure this week. Help us to have a heart to be vulnerable and to develop a need, an dependency, and a desperation for our spouse. And then God bless us as we take time to slowly collide to build relational fusion. God, we love you. We need you. We ask you throughout this month to speak into our hearts and help us to apply it to our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name today. And everyone said together, amen.